Good afternoon, Storehouse. Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Today we'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 2, verse 5. And it says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of which we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord." And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God, the word of God for the people of God. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good afternoon. I hope that y'all are doing well. My name is Marco, and I serve as the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. Always a joy to get to hang with y'all on the Sunday afternoon. In the event that you just walked in and you did not catch our sister LC, we're going to find ourselves in the New Testament. We're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, and we're walking all the way through chapter 2, verse 5. As we've begun this series, I want to kind of give you a little bit of a heads up. Over the course of our time, every once in a while, we're going to look at passages that are really brief and short, and then sometimes we're going to be looking at entire chapters in this letter. Either way, it will be fun, it will be challenging, because faith comes by hearing. So with that being said, let me begin our time by praying, and, uh, and then we'll dig into this, this beautiful letter. God, you are good, and you do good. And so we are thankful for this afternoon. We're thankful for the opportunity to um, receive your word, to worship you, and for the delight in exalting the name of Jesus. And so, God, my simple prayer this afternoon is that your word would be sweeter to us than the taste of honey. That those who know Jesus would know him better this afternoon. That those who do not know Jesus would come and know Jesus and live like him. 
We are thankful. We love you. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Well, in a sermon on 1 Corinthians, Martin Luther, good old Marty Loons, he was a German reformer in the 16th century. And Martin Luther said that there are two kinds of theologies. There is a theology of self-glory or personal glory, and then a theology of the cross. When it comes to a theology of personal glory, it is when individuals build their belief in light of what they expect God to be like. And then sarcastically he says, surprise, surprise, they want him to be just like themselves. And then there are those who have a theology of the cross, of those who build their faith and their belief in light of God's revelation through his son, Jesus Christ. Let us be theologians of the cross. Now that sounds really good, but it's a little bit harder to do, isn't it? You know why it's hard? Because Christians are weird. And if you're like, that's offensive, you're telling me you're not weird. Christians are weird. Have you shared the gospel with someone recently? Like, have you heard yourself when you share the message of the gospel? Have you preached the gospel to yourself lately? It sounds a bit odd. God enters into human history through the virgin birth, lives a sinless life, works a job as a carpenter, goes into ministry at age 30, hangs out with a bunch of misfits, tells them the truths of God, dies on a cross for them, and then he is buried and is resurrected. That means he came back to life, ascends into heaven, rules and reigns from heaven, and will one day return to judge the living and the dead. And everybody says, amen. But think about it. You tell me that doesn't sound weird? What if, we, what if we were to modernize the gospel? Now, that sounds heretical, but just stick with me for a little bit. What if we were to modernize the gospel? In other words, what if we were to make the same message and apply it to our culture? There's this 16-year-old virgin who's a sophomore at Nikki Rowe, and at some point she gets pregnant because God says that she is pregnant, and she's dating this junior from La Jolla, and he needs to step up. And so they wed. She gives birth to this child. He is sinless. His cousin Juan baptizes him at municipal swimming pool off of Bicentennial. He preaches sermons at the McKellen Convention Center. Lives a sinless and holy life. Lives in La Balboa. Works at Firestone. And at one point, he even walks across Resaca. And then he dies for sinners in their place for their sin, buried, raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit, ascends into heaven, and will return one day to judge the living and the dead. Sounds a bit odd. It sounds like it doesn't make sense. And the last thing you and I hate is looking like fools. 
And this is what the Corinthians are wrestling with. Not only do they not want to be seen as fools, they're thinking that by adding some sort of creative, incredible method to the message of the gospel is the secret ingredients to intelligence, acceptance, influence. You and I are not different. From extreme church experiences, like let's get the fog machines in, uh, to figuring out as many arguments as we can to prove the existence of God, we will go to great lengths to not look like fools. And if you do none of those, then like many, you choose to remain silent. Paul's point in this big piece of scripture is this, Christians are to be married to the content of the cross, not the standards of the culture. Christians are to be married to the content, the message of the cross, not the standards of the culture. Beginning with the power of the cross, this is in uh, verses 18 to 25. The Corinthians were very gifted, but they were troubled in a a problematic church. They continued to battle idols of their culture, two of which were intelligence and influence. To the Corinthians, they thought, the more you know, the more influential you are. The more you know, the less wrong I am. Over and over again, we'll see the Corinthians measuring their worth and identity based on cultural standards. And it's similar in our church and in our day. In the valley, it's not about what you know, it's about who you know. Because who you know leads to power, influence, it leads to association. I'm cool because of them. What about when it comes to the significance of family, relationships, and success? In our valley culture, that's all cultural currency. And what does it buy us, right? What does it buy us? It buys us stability, it buys us significance, it buys us security. Because you got it figured out. Our culture can and does often believe that Jesus saves us because we're credible, not because we're sinful. So to the Corinthians and to us, Paul refreshes them by reminding them that that's not at all how God saves. And that's not at all who God saves. That it's not about their intellect or our familial credibility. In fact, he saves in a way that doesn't make sense to you on purpose, to flip everything on its head, to turn everything upside down. And that's the point. So beginning in verse 18, Paul goes on to say, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The word of the cross, that little phrase, contains both the content of the message, God entered into human history and died for sinners. It contains the content as well as the proclamation of that message. In other words, the news, the good news of the gospel is not only something that you and I receive, it is also something that you and I proclaim. We don't just need good deeds or good works, we need good news. And news is to be proclaimed. You don't turn it on to Channel 5 with Tim Smith, and he's like, I got some news, and if necessary, I'll tell you some words. Right? No, he's going to tell you what's going on with the weather. News is meant to be communicated. 
And it is this message that divides the entire human race. Paul says it. There are those who are perishing, those who do not know Jesus. And then there are those who have been saved by Jesus. It speaks to the urgency of this message that we are to proclaim. Paul goes on to say uh, this little phrase, but to us who are being saved. If you're a, a grammar nerd, there are three tenses. You don't have to write this down. You can just listen. There are three tenses to consider. That we are saved, we are being saved, and that we will be saved. Meaning that God in Christ has saved us. He has made us his own. We are being saved. That he is changing our minds and our nature and our hearts. And that we will be saved. That one day we will be with him in eternal glory. We are being saved. And there is an urgency of proclamation. Now, that's where the rubber hits the road, yeah? Yeah? Because the way to know God doesn't come from how you think it should come. It doesn't come down in some neatly wrapped way that you would like it for yourself. God flips everything upside down. The way God makes himself known to you and I is through the revelation of his son, Jesus Christ, who lived a sinless life, died for sinners, ascended into heaven, and will return one day to claim his bride, the church. God reveals that we are sinners in need of grace. He reveals that God actually isn't cool with the way that we are, which is why he sent Jesus. And it doesn't make sense. It will not make sense to the wisdom of our world. It doesn't make sense to the world of intellect. It doesn't make sense to the world of experience or even family. Because in our culture, if you say, I love Jesus and my family is second, it's like you're betraying generations. And so Paul comments on this by saying, I will destroy, he's quoting from Isaiah, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. The context of that passage in Isaiah is where God tells Israel that they are honoring him with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. And in that chapter, I believe it's Isaiah 29, in that chapter, Israel has grown uh, uh, indifferent and arrogant Toward God, And so Paul makes this connection uh, by quoting Isaiah uh, and saying, humanity thinks it's smarter than God, but God destroys that thinking and does so in a very unique way. That is through the word of the cross. That he makes himself known to sinners in need of grace through Jesus Christ. See, for the Corinthians, they were more worried about looking cultured, right, than being biblical. To further his point, this is in the entire section, I won't read all of it. To further his point, this is in verses 20 to 25, Paul adds a series of rhetorical questions, right? He, he begins by saying, who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Later on in verse 22, he'll say, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. Paul's point here is that people want to determine, people want to determine the way they will come to their conclusions about God. They want to be the ones to say, oh, this is how I found out about God. This is how I 
figured God out. And so this set of rhetorical questions, the wise, those are the philosophers of the day, uh, the scribe, those are the scholars, uh, the debater, those are the speculators. In other words, those are the individuals that would say, you know what, I will come to know God if he does X. If this happens, then I will believe. And Paul's point here is to show how God makes the world's wisdom look foolish. Because everything that they're doing, it's not that it's bad. It's not that intellect and philosophy and family and all of those things are bad. But that's not what's life-giving. It is the word of the cross that is life-giving. It is the changing of our nature, one that you cannot do on your own, that is life-giving. Therefore, to think this way, like the, the wise, the scribe, and the baiters, is actually arrogant. Because we can't and we do not come to know God by arguing our way to him. And that was the problem with the Greeks. They're all about their logic, and they're all about their reasoning, and they want the argument, and they want to know the cross-references and the books that you read, and tell me all this. They're trying to argue their way there. But then you have the Jews. The Jews demanded signs because signs were an evidence of power. And they wanted significance. To the Jews, the word of the cross was folly because there's no way our Messiah would be on a cross. To the Jews, they genuinely believed that God would enter into human history with might, not meekness that he would cast over all with his reign, not be crucified on a tree between two thieves. That's why Paul says it's a stumbling block to them because they wanted it the way they wanted it in order to make them happy, just like you and I do apart from God. And this still exists in the church today. There are some Christians, for example, going back to the Jews, in other words, when they say, I wanted a sign, they wanted the experience Give me the church experience so then I would believe. So then I'll know that you actually are God. In Mark 8, there's this exchange where the Pharisees come to Jesus and they're testing him. And they test him by asking for a sign. Show us a sign and then we'll know that you really are the Messiah. And here's what Jesus responds with. Why does this generation seek a sign? And right before this, it says that he sighed deeply in his spirit. So he says, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. There are some individuals in the church that really want that church experience. Hook me up with those fog machines. Tell me about your production value. I want to know if the pastor's coming down from a zip line or not. That's for real, right? Helicopters and fireworks. I want my emotional heartstrings pulled, right? Because that's going to surface some level of emotion, Right? That's going to tell me that now God really is present. Tell me what it is I can consume and tell me what kind of programs you have. And there are many of you who are new today and you might even ask that. Yes, tell me about your building and your programs. Welcome to Storehouse McAllen. We have no building or programs. This isn't even ours. Right? <clears throat> but I will be clear about something. We do want to hook you up with an experience. And that experience is God's word. That's the experience. That's what we want to hook you up with. Everything in the way we do, for example, Sunday afternoons is meant to point you to the character and goodness of God. Doesn't matter what clown is up here. 
So once more, Paul isn't against scholarship, academia. He's not against family or success. But we can't do any of those things and earn our way to God or figure our way out to God. And again, many, and even Christians still, think this is how we make our way to God. This is how we come to know God. It's through these endeavors. But consider verse 21. Paul says, In the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Down to verse 25. uh, Excuse me, down to verse 24. To those who are called, both Jews and Greek, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Here's Paul's point. We have been saved. Our minds have been changed because God called us to himself. God made himself known to you. That at one point, you did think like the world. You did live according to the world. Some of you probably still do. But for the Christian, it wasn't that they figured it out. It was that God called them to himself. He made himself known. I mean, if you think back to to your Christian life, one point, you're probably like the thief on the cross, cussing him out. And then the next day, he changes your heart and he changes your mind. Some of you is over time. Some of you is instantaneous. One thing is true. In Romans 1, it teaches, or Paul teaches the Romans that, hey, at one point, all of us suppress the truth of God. Why do we suppress the truth of God? Because, here it is, y'all ready? We suppressed the truth of God because to acknowledge that there is a God who rules and reigns over everything and then confess that that God is not me doesn't work well for me. So not only does that then mean I have to come under the submission of his authority, it also means I don't maintain my own, and that's the last thing I want. But God, rich in mercy, makes himself known to us through what? The folly of the message that we preach. Christ and him crucified. Through this message that doesn't make doesn't sound like it makes sense, but yet that is what God uses to draw us to Himself. Our job is not to create something new, but to faithfully proclaim what is good. Hearts are changed. The fruit of repent the fruit of faith is repentance and a new life, not a perfect one. In a bit, we're going to baptize a couple folks. They didn't figure it out. God called them to Himself. And when he did, they said, yes, Lord. Faith is a gift. You cannot work or intellectualize your way to God. You can't speculate your way to God. You can't be a good family moral person way way to God. (laughs) It is only through him revealing himself to you. So if you want to know God, start with God. Start with God's word. If you want to know God, then look to Jesus. The folly of the gospel is the power of God that saves sinners. 
Next, in verses 26 to, through 31, we're going to look at the people of the cross. So we just looked at the power of the cross. Now we're going to look at the people of the cross. And so Paul has kind of hooked them up with, you know, some folly and some wisdom. And so now he shifts gears and he goes from some fancy rhetoric to relationship. And he wants the Corinthians to remember what God has done for them. So verse 26, for consider your calling, brothers. Here's basically what he's saying. Hey, remember when Jesus saved you? I love that he uses that familial language, right? Because family is important. I'm not saying it's not, right? But he uses that familial language with the Corinthians. Consider your calling. Consider. Think hard. Remember when Jesus saved you. And he continues, and I'll read a portion of it. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak to shame the strong, what is low and despised, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Paul is making this point. Remember when Jesus saved you? He didn't save you because of the standards of the world. He didn't save you because you were super powerful and influential. He didn't save you because of your last name and who you know. He didn't save you because of your moral goodness or your ethic. No, that's not who God saves. And the problem with the Corinthians is that this was a pride that was still in them. They kept on thinking, man, God looked down the corridor time and saw me, a Corinthian, and was like, I could use that guy on my team. He's pretty solid, that guy, right? It's like, again, putting it in our context, like she can make some legit tacos. We could use her on our team. Oh my gosh, he knows how, he's a mechanic. I totally need him on my team, right? Like that's not how it works. That's not who God saves. So then who is it that God saves? We're gonna rewind. I'm not gonna read the whole thing to Matthew 5. This is the start of the Sermon on the Mount. It's also known as the Beatitudes, at least this section. I only want to read two parts of it. Here's what Jesus says. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit isn't just referring to people in poverty. The poor in spirit are those who are emptied of their pride. The poor in spirit are those who are spiritually drained and empty. You fast forward a couple of verses, he goes on to say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall be satisfied. You're like, oh, I'm righteous. I do good things. How's it going? Because outside of God, our righteousness is nothing. The only way in which we walk into the kingdom of heaven is with the robes of righteousness, but those robes are that of another. That's who God saves. See, he flips everything upside down. It's not the strong, it's not the smart, it's not the super family guy, it's the poor in spirit. The ones who thirst for righteousness. Why does he do it that way? To reveal his glory, to reveal his greatness, his kindness, and his power. This one is not on your notes, so you could just listen to this part. This is Paul speaking to his young disciple, Timothy, and he tells him this. 
The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That phrase means you can take this to the bank. You could depend on what I'm about to tell you. That Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Here it is. But I received mercy for this reason. That in me, as the foremost, as the worst, Paul, if you don't know who he was, previous to becoming a Christian, he used to murder Christians and arrest them. He goes on to say, But I received mercy for this reason, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. This gives God all of the glory, and what should it do to us? Keep us humble. Confident, yes, but humble. Christians who boast in themselves display a theology of personal glory, not a theology of the cross. The ones who do that tend to be more about, look at me instead of he, right? They tend to be more about, look at what I did. Look at how much I gave. Look at what I have done. Look at what I did for God. Look at me. In this entire section, Paul is trying to get the attention off of himself. Christians who hold to a theology of personal glory are all about themselves. Look at me. Look at what I've done. Look at what I've given because I have faith, because I believe Instead, we should be saying it is because of him, because he has saved us, because of his righteousness, not our own, because of his work and our response to that work, because he purchased us out of our slavery to sin. That's what Paul means at the end of verse 30, that we are united to Christ and in him we have righteousness, sanctification, Redemption, all of that is his work because of him, not because of me. Not because of me. Therefore, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You're going to boast about anything? You want to be loud about anything? You want to tell people what's on your mind? Tell them about Jesus. Tell them the word of the cross. Tell them what God has done. The people of the cross boast in the God of the cross. And finally, we come to chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. This is the proclamation of the cross. The power of the cross saves us. We become people of the cross, and we are drawn to this message that which we proclaim. And so here we go. I'll read the first portion of it. Paul says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, there's that familial language, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Verse 4, My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Paul is an individual that's not against eloquence or persuasion. He uses a lot of that in his letters. Uh, But here, that's not the point. For Paul, he knew the cultural values of Corinth. He knew that wisdom and intellect were big deals. That's something that they were attracted to. But for Paul, rather than competing with the culture, he demonstrated the compassion of Christ to them. He goes on to say, this is verse 2, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I didn't want to be impressive. That wasn't my point. I wasn't here to show you my degrees. No one cares about that. I'm here to tell you about Jesus and him crucified. 
Paul wanted to show that he depended on the Spirit completely, not his sophistication. Paul wanted to ensure that what was central to his message was the cross, because he knew that if he dismissed the cross, if he forgot about the cross, if he avoided the cross, then he'd void Christianity. And that's helpful for us. It's helpful because we proclaim the message of the cross, not with a spirit of competition, but compassion to those who don't know Jesus. We are to be long-suffering, patient, kind, particularly with those who do not know the Lord. And here's the thing, because I get this one a lot. We will not always know the answer. And you're not meant to know all of the answers all of the time, but you know the one who does. I'm reminded of this story. There was a pastor who met with a professor who was an atheist. And once the professor learned that this dude was a pastor, he starts shooting off all sorts of questions. And so the pastor is trying to defend the faith, and he's responding to as many questions as he can. And at the end of it, he's exhausted, and he goes on to say that he really wanted to win. He really wanted to show the reality and beauty and credibility of God. And so he tells one of his colleagues, I just, I, I felt dumb. And I felt like my argument was weak. And I felt like I didn't have a watertight argument. And his colleague goes on to tell him, we do not have a watertight argument. We have a watertight person. You may not always have the answers, but you know the one who does. So we proclaim Christ crucified, and if that makes us a few good fools, then so be it. We were on the other side before, but God, rich in mercy, called us to himself. A seminary professor by the name of John Henry Jowett, he was uh, speaking to pastors and preachers, hooking them up with some knowledge at a preaching lab, and here's what he says. Again, this is to pastors and preachers, but I think it applies to all of us. He goes on to say, What we are after is not that folks shall say at the end of it all, what an excellent sermon. That is a measured failure. You are there to have them say, when it is over, what a great Savior. It is something for men not to have been in your presence, but His. The people of the cross Proclaim the message of the cross, Christ and Him crucified. Let us be a people with a theology of the cross, not one of personal glory. May our hearts and lips sing as the hymn reads, We will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom. But we will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Those of you who are being baptized, you can go ahead and get ready. Everyone else, I want you to consider a few things. You're going to see movement. It's okay. You've seen people walk before. <laughs> Here's what I would have you consider. Christian. Is there pride in your heart 
right now? Are you living in arrogance because you've followed Jesus for so many years, because you've read so many books, because yet you worship God without the people of God, and you have your reasons? Is there pride in your heart? The message of the cross invites you to repent of your sin and turn to Jesus. If there is shame associated with that sin, yeah, it happens. But repentance is always grace-driven. And if you don't know Jesus, my encouragement would be, do not start with speculation. Begin with Jesus. Start with his word, not the preacher. In a minute, as we see individuals get baptized, here's what I would also commend to you. Think back to when Jesus saved you. Think back to when you were baptized. Baptism is a sign of what God has done. So let's make much of it. Christians are married to the content of the cross, not the standard of culture. Let me pray. We'll move into baptisms, and I'll, I'll tell you what's, what's up. <clears throat> Lord, we praise you and thank you for Jesus, our great God and Savior. It was not our strength. It's not our name. It is not our intelligence or ethic by which we have been saved, by which we have been reconciled to you, but solely according to his grace and glory. Lord, we confess that we are often captivated by our own personal glory, but that the cross of Christ, we confess, Sometimes we rather proclaim a different message. We rather do that in order to avoid looking or sounding foolish. But bring to remembrance that you have called us out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of your light. You call us beloved. You call us redeemed. And Lord, sometimes we ignore and hide that in order to look different. Give us the strength to preach the message of the power of the cross as a people of the cross. God, as we celebrate baptisms today, remind us of your power in our lives when you saved us, when you redeemed us, when you wrapped us in the righteousness of Christ and called us sons and daughters. Bring that to mind today, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.